The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there was an editorial today in the Washington Post that caught my attention. Uh, Trump still in search of a China strategy, and it was really, you know, apropos for this week, about the ongoing and the intensifying U.S.-China trade war. But as I was reading this, and that headline stuck out to me, I really felt like it was also Trump still in search of an Africa strategy would also be an appropriate headline, because here we are now, deep into the Prosper Africa announcement that came in Purdue earlier this year. Uh, We have this sense now that U.S. policy in Africa is adrift, uh, there was an AGOA forum, the African Growth and Opportunity Act forum that was that took place in Abuja uh, just this week as well. And there, Constant Hamilton, who's the assistant U.S. trade representative for Africa, she said, uh, I do not think that AGOA has been the game changer for many African countries on the continent that we hoped it would be. AGOA has not led to the trade diversification for which we originally hoped. So we take all of this... Prosper Africa, the law, the the AGOA kind of talk, and then let's put the U.S.-China trade war in the background on all of this. And this is why today we're going to come back to the U.S.-China-Africa relationship because we just have to. The South African RAND uh, just this week hit a seven-week low on the news of heightened sanctions against or tariffs against uh, the Chinese and then the Chinese halting their purchases of U.S. agricultural commodities And then at the same time, very important here for Africa, the Chinese currency devalued to less than to seven to the dollar. It crossed the seven mark, and that was a psychological point. And that makes Chinese goods cheaper to import into Africa, which of course is good for consumers, but it's very, very bad for those companies in Africa who are already trying to compete with the Chinese and their low-cost imports. So, Kobus, a lot of things moving right now in the U.S.-China-Africa relationship, and we always have to be cognizant of the fact that Africa sits in the middle and really is quite vulnerable. Yes, it's becoming more vulnerable on both sides. Um, I, we shouldn't also shouldn't forget that South Africa it's, itself has also been targeted by Trump administration um, tariffs, uh, which hit the, the steel industry. And I saw numbers that South Africa has lost, I think, between 8,000 and 10,000 jobs from its steel and um, aluminum industries because of this, because of the tariffs. So, you know, th- this is this is on the back of historically bad unemployment numbers in South Africa, which which pushed the rand lower even. Um, and, you know, so, so it's generally just bad news all around. Um, and there's, there is um, a real feeling, I think, in Africa that, that, you know, the U.S. isn't particularly kind of, you know, it, it isn't putting its money where its mouth is. It, it announces all of these, these initiatives when we're not really seeing what they're going to be, what they're going to be in reality. Um, and at the same time, you know, the trade war just makes day-to-day life economics in South Africa, in Africa, harder and harder. Now, I was recently in Washington uh, over the summer, 
and had the chance to, to meet with stakeholders on all different sides, from think tanks to the State Department to government, and to get a sense of what people are thinking about the China-Africa relationship and Africa as a whole. And that sense that the policy is adrift was something that I really walked away from, in part because we have an administration that does feel like it's shooting from the hip. This is a president that makes foreign policy by Twitter. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of people inside Washington and inside the Beltway who are coming up with a lot of great ideas. And some of those ideas are coming from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where Judd Devermont is the director of the Africa program there. And he was very kind to invite me to come down and meet some of the folks at CSIS and also to join uh, his excellent podcast, Into Africa, where you too, Cobus, were also joining us. And we were joined by none other than Yuen Sun, a non-resident fellow, with the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institute in Washington. Uh, she also serves as the co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. So we had the chance to sit down, and what we were talking about is what is a pragmatic approach for U.S. policy in Africa, and how does the Chinese presence there complicate, make this possible? And what we did, we started our discussion with Judd talking about Zambia. So let's start. This is a little bit of an unusual podcast today because we're actually going to play a pod, you know, the podcast that we recorded for Judd and the Into Africa podcast. And we're going to rebroadcast it here because we really think it's an opportunity for both of our podcasts to introduce each other to their audiences. And we think this is a great conversation for everybody on the China and Africa podcast to talk once again about U.S.-China-Africa relations. And our conversation begins with Zambia. <music> A conversation I've been really excited to have, uh, which is Zambia. Now, Eric and Kobus, you guys talked about this in an episode last year about Zambia and China. And I think there's a, a need for a slight update because for me, when I look across the 49 sub-Saharan African countries, there's such an interesting intertwining of Zambian politics and Chinese politics. The Zambian government now has accused the opposition of fueling xenophobic attacks. They arrested the key opposition leader for an anti-China remark. They, again, in February, released uh, arrested another uh, opposition leader who's a rival of President Lungu on suspicions of xenophobia. Uh, you know, it seems that everything, if an opposition leader talks negatively about China, it's now perceived as, as against Z Lungu and vice versa. And Zambia has a long history that many of our listeners and your listeners may know, going back to um, Michael Sata and his anti-China campaign in 2011. But I, I do wonder if this is a justifiable or a justification for getting rid of your opponents, or is this a harbinger of things that we are going to see as domestic politics and this foreign policy story about China and Chinese investment become intertwined? Eric, I think you probably have some strong views on this. I do. And I think Zambia is really an, an interesting case to watch because in many ways, it's a flashpoint for the Chinese on a lot of different issues. Let's take a couple pieces one by one here. Um, the Chinese do stand in as proxies for Lungu. So it can be risky now to criticize the president or the administration. Uh, but up until now, uh, up until about last year, uh, criticizing the Chinese was a free pass because the Chinese never respond. And because of the close proximity between China and elites, not just in Zambia, but in, other, in many other places, uh, by criticizing the Chinese, it was the same as criticizing the relationship between the Chinese and, and the elites. That's now changed. You missed one also, Pielo Lumumba. Yes, that's, yeah. right, he, that's right. He, you know, Lungu didn't want 
represent uh, this very, very, uh, you know, he sees him as an agitator. He's a, he's a Kenyan, kind of uh, very popular on social media and very, very anti-Chinese. And he was supposed to come to Lusaka to, speech, uh, to speak, and he, he denied him a visa as well. The other part of Kenya that's very, very interesting is more uh, very, very, um, I mean, for lack of a better word, fake news. This is where that just spread like wildfire about the Chinese on social media. We had the China exporting human meat. Right, right. Uh, we've had uh, the, the case last year, which was very provocative, of uh, four or five Chinese men beating up or killing a young Zambian man, which was never verified. Uh, they weren't, in fact, uh, even Chinese. They looked like they were Malaysian. It was never proven. But again, it just circulates around and it feeds into this, this frustration that people have both with the Chinese and with the Lungu administration. So I, I don't know who's best place to answer this. Maybe Yoon, Kobus, uh, but why now and why Zambia? Why is this why is this the leading indicator of this change? And I think we'll talk a little bit about other countries that are replicating this as well. Well, one, it does have something to do with the level of the Chinese engagement in Zambia. And two, we're at an era where the Chinese so-called death trap diplomacy is being uh, examined almost all over the world, and it's not just in Africa. But Africa certainly presents several cases of where the debt owed to the, to the Chinese policy banks or to Chinese government uh, institutions are becoming Coming increasingly scrutinized. So this is not just an independent case. We do see that phenomena in other continents and in other countries. Yeah, so Kobus, I know you have some thoughts on other countries that are, 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 are we're seeing this there as well. Do you want to kind of give us a glo- more global picture? Yes, you certainly, you know, there's certainly a, a, a discourse that, that you see in, in several African countries. Djibouti is obviously, you know, one of the most obvious examples. You know, one of the most obvious examples. And, you know, I think the, the, there's, a, there's a, a large kind of a high levels of anxiety about mounting debt in Africa. Um, and, you know, so, so I think it, 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 the, the idea that, that crooked politicians are in bed with China and, and running up high debt. That is a narrative that that is that's kind of easy to understand, and it, and in, in some cases, you know, kind of like you know, it's always a complicated situation. But in some cases, it's, it's quite close to the truth. So you see versions of this this kind of uh, discussion about debt and co- con- connecting the problem of debt with the problem of corruption, with the uh, perceptions that the, that the the incumbent government is too close to China, you know the, uh, that kind of neat overlapping and packaging of those of those different themes. You see that uh, we've seen that a lot in Kenya over the last the last few months, um, and it, you know it, it, I think in, in the case of Zambia it becomes this kind of supercharged. Um, version of of a dynamic that we see in lots of other African countries where it becomes very convenient uh, to discredit incumbent governments by characterizing them as being too close to the Chinese. And we're recently seeing this cropping up in Botswana as well. Yeah, but let's be very clear here. There's a very important Zambian agency that's involved here because the Zambians have had a lot of economic malfeasance. Uh, Their eurobond interest rates shot up to 19.45% a couple weeks ago because of their decision to take action against certain mines. Uh, they owe significantly more money to the eurobond market than to the Chinese. Uh, so the Chinese are, are a part of the Zambian picture, but they're not the whole picture when it comes to debt. And I find that so much of the conversation about Zambian debt focuses on the Chinese, yeah. but they pay significantly more interest to eurobond holders in Europe than they do to the Chinese. And the Chinese have shown some flexibility in Zambian debt. So I just think it's – I'm not trying to defend the Chinese here, but I'm trying to put some context here that we don't only talk about the Chinese debt situation. One other final point – yeah. The Zambians have been using debt to pay for 
other debts and to pay for administration. That is not a growth strategy. But you know, it's a Zambia is a economically uh, depressed region. Uh, the Copper Belt for has you know at least for in the earlier part of this decade really suffered when the global commodities come down. There's a um, a populism that we see in Zambia and uh, a uh, instrumentation of xenophobia that worked for SATA. And I think oppositions who are finding it difficult to find ways to sort of uh, compete with Lungu for lots of reasons that we don't have time on this podcast have used the China narrative. And I do think that we will see it in other places, especially in Southern Africa, regardless of where the level of debt is. If you look at Afrobarometer polling, Southern Africans, more than other regions, actually have a much higher level of distrust of foreigners. When they're asked questions like, would you want to live next to a foreigner? And now they may be thinking about Nigerians, and they may think about Lebanese, but I think China is increasingly part of the mix because Chinese are increasingly part of their, their, their national fabric as citizens or as residents. Well, I agree. I think China is certainly not. Uh, China is one of the external creditors to uh, to many African countries, and in many cases, they may not be the largest. But the sense of vulnerability and the sense of anxiety from the Africans come aren't well to a large part from the way that the Chinese operate. Like when they look into the details of the loans or the deals that the Chinese had reached with the African governments, there's very little information on the market. So it is very difficult one to to really determine what is the nature of the Chinese intention and what is the financial and security consequences, implications of these, uh, of these type of projects. So the lack of information and the lack of transparency in particular fuels into this anxiety because people simply do not understand or they can only speculate the worst intention or the worst case scenario from the Chinese projects. So Kobus uh, mentioned Kenya. I think there's also there's also an aspect there where um, it's, you know, there's a, there's a feeling that the, that the Chinese involvement, the Chinese debt and, and Chinese migration to, to Africa, all of those feel like new things, I think, for Africa, whereas, you know, kind of being indebted to, to Europe or to Western institutions and having Europeans and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, other kinds of foreigners around in Africa, th- those have been naturalized to a certain extent. Um, in, you know, in, in, in the case of China, they're, they're, it's, very, it's easy to, to, to portray this as a new crazy kind of thing that people are dealing with. Um, you know, which which makes it easier to kind of to, to, to make a kind of a China threat narrative out of it as well. I think that's exactly right. And the other thing is that we're more likely to see this in partial democracies and democracies where there is some political competition, even if it's uh, not full political competition. And when there's still plurality, there's still an ability to talk to the media on social media. So I think Kenya, you mentioned earlier, Kobus, South Africa is an example. We're starting to seeing some of this. The opposition in Ghana has talked about this. In fact, earlier last year, you know, reached out to the IMF and said they shouldn't give China, they shouldn't give this deal to Ghana because of the China angle. So I think we'll see this become more infused in local politics, regardless of what the global conversation is. So uh, something to to keep keep your eye out for as this becomes an emerging trend. All right, I want to move to our main topic. And this is our second uh, podcast mashup that we have done here at Into Africa. And I couldn't be more honored to be talking with Eric and Kobus. I'm a devoted listener to uh, your guys' podcast. And uh, my only regret is that it took me too long to discover the show. So I didn't hear the episode that Yoon was in. All 400 episodes are online. So what are you doing this weekend? (laughs) Time is uh, our most precious commodity, Eric. Um, So I I, want to focus us on something that I spend almost all my time uh, in 
interacting with the U.S. policymakers and the community here in D.C. is what is actually a pragmatic approach that we can have? How do we protect, advance U.S. interests at the same time, think about African prosperity, think about African sovereignty and African um, peace? And, uh, you know, right now it's, there's so much fire breathing on China um, in Washington, D.C., and there's a lack of clarity, in my view, about what we should even be countering. I said this when Yun and I testified late last year. It seems to be, whether it's explicit or not, everything. And a good strategist knows that when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. So I thought we could talk a little bit about what are the things that the U.S. should actually be focused on? Because I think all of us agree that China is doing a lot of things that Africans actually want and need and that the U.S. isn't going to do. But I think we can also talk about the things that China is doing that may undermine uh, either African interest or I work at a think tank based in the United States. I'm a former U.S. government employee. I think a lot about the U.S. interest as well. So the first question probably is, you know, what are the things that we should really be worried about and thinking about? And what are the things that actually are, are quite fine what they're doing. It may either not affect U.S. interests or actually may benefit them. Well, Jeff, you're absolutely right, right that there is, uh, well, without discrimination here in Washington, what China does in Africa is regarded as evil, as hostile, and as undermining U.S. national interest. Well, on the other hand, from the African perspective, what the Chinese have delivered to the African continents have been highly regarded and highly welcomed. And so when uh, American officials or the American policy analysts tell the uh, the Africans that you should be more careful about the Chinese investment or the Chinese infrastructure projects, the reaction that we get is, uh, so what are you offering? Right. What right. are the, right. so what are you right. offering as the, as the alternative? And the fact is that we have been calling for U.S. to pay more attention to Africa, to allocate more policy resources to Africa. But the fact simply is that China is engaging Africa at a different level, at a whole different scale that the U.S. may not be able to, to compete with. But I think that reality is very difficult for uh, for, for a lot of people to, to accept. So the attention instead has been focused on what China is doing wrong in Africa and how we can work with Africans to um, to prevent the wrongdoings of the of the Chinese to, to but expand. Not, but they're not specific about what those things are. I mean, or... I I mean, there, you you can't counter everything that China does, especially when you're not resourcing it, and it's not advisable. It's counterproductive. So I don't know. Like uh, when we did that testimony, I talked about ports and telecom. I think it's a very complicated conversation. I'm happy to get into it. I've thought about soft power a lot, but at least trying to put on the table a couple of things that isn't as broad as where we are. I don't know, Eric. Like you've been in Washington for the last week. What do you think? I mean, uh, so I've been here all week and talking to mostly government stakeholders. And the there's two things that are, two observations that I'm taking away with. Number one, people here in Washington are much more focused on the internal workings of Washington and trying to do things within the bureaucracy here. They're not focused on an outward strategy for Africa as much. That needs to change. We got to get people focused on Africa and not on how to get things through the bureaucracy. Number two, those, those are related. Unfortunately. They are related, but that is the reality of, of politics in Washington today, not just in Africa, but in a lot of different sectors. And it's dysfunctional and it hurts us in the long run. Number two, and this is a message that I've delivered to a number of different stakeholders, shut up about China. Hmm. Stop talking about China, really. 
Because when you define yourself against your competition, you're not defining about yourself what you are for. So basically, IDFC, the International Development Finance Corporation, is the We Are Not China Development Finance Corporation. Our policy, Assistant Secretary Naj, was out there just this week on the BBC saying how bad and awful everything that China's doing. The problem with that is we just don't know what the United States is for. We know what they're against. We know that they don't think China's 5G is any good. We know that they don't think that American in, uh, Chinese infrastructure is any good. And by the way, Assistant Secretary Naj reminded us all again that he's not going to bail out uh, African countries in the event of a debt of a debt problem. Tobis, do you agree with Eric? I mean, is you know, do we need to stop talking? Does the United States need to stop talking about China? Um, I yes, I, I think I, I would probably put it slightly differently in, in the sense that the. Uh, you know, w- w- one of the I was also actually recently in, in Washington, and, and it was it was uh, I had very kind of similar conversations as Eric has been having, um, and the the way that I put it to 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 people, um, you know, in in, in rooms in, in DC was that you have to take into account where Africa is. You have to really take seriously where Africa is at, at the moment. Um, and that means that you have to also take into account what that, that Africa is coming from, uh, from an experience of pervasive systemic underdevelopment that is unimaginable in, in a first world developed context. You know, the, the, the U.S. Has, hasn't had that kind of experience, I think, in living memory outside of extremely kind of uh, extreme kind of examples um, or extreme kind of cases like maybe, yeah, I, I'm not really, you know, kind of confident to name one in the U.S., but um, China, it brings a, a very unique story to, China, to Africa, which is we used to be as poor as you are, and now we are unimaginably rich within within one or two generations. That story counts for more than any kind of fear-mongering about Huawei, any kind of like talking about sovereignty or ports or whatever. You know, so so you, you need to you know in order to to kind of to to, to have a, an impact on the level of that story, you need to take really take African development seriously and really take um, into account how hungry Africa is for development. And also, I think, be realistic that we, we are now talking about the continent with, with a very large number of extremely fast-growing economies, you know. So I think Africa is, is gaining some confidence and they feel they have something to offer. And so only speaking about Africa in terms of Chinese influence or whether Africa is going with the U.S. or going with China and essentially leaving Africa out of its own story is a fatal strategy. That's just not going to work. He's saying the same thing. I'm saying he's just saying it nicer and more articulate so that that we are on the same page. Okay. Uh, We're really glad that you're here then, (laughs) Kobus. We need the... the, Yeah, we need the Eric translator, the Eric Whisper. Um, You know, I... I absolutely agree with you. And one of the things that I I have been saying to the U.S. government and to anyone who wants to talk about it is it's not just that Africa needs roads, African countries, African businesses, but U.S. businesses need roads, right? We need – if we want to sell our products to Africans, we need ports that work and we need roads that work. And the truth is – with a couple of exceptions, that's not really what American companies do. We're not in the top 10 for, infra- for road construction. Um, we do some ports. We did a port, two ports under the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, but we don't do 46 ports. And I've started to use this line. No one's really, it's not really catching any, uh, it's not, it's not, you know, no one's using it, but I like it, which is it's, it's 
we need to have this approach that's like improv. Yes, and. Yes, take the Chinese money. You need to do those projects. And we're happy to help you structure the deals in ways that make sense for you, particularly if we're not competing on the bid, because we think those roads are important. We think those ports are important. We want to make sure that it's, it's a good deal for you with good local content, that you can negotiate uh, uh, you know, the right kinds of financing terms, that you can make sure that it's not environmentally degraded. And it doesn't have to be necessarily us. We can also put that investments in the World Bank or a multilateral institution. But... We can work on the things that we are really good at, and there's a host of things from financing to services, and we're happy to help and be a partner to the Africans so they can get the best deals from the Chi- excuse me, the best deals from the Chinese. And um, it doesn't it has a hard time resonating here right now because we are, you know, the idea of doing anything that could actually support or help or at least not not counter China isn't is very distasteful, but it's, I think it's a much more of a, a winning strategy with the Africans. I think the last comment that I want to make on this is the fact that I believe that since Prosper Africa was announced in Maputo a few weeks ago, that an hourglass tipped. And I think African stakeholders are going to be looking at the United States and saying, if I don't see something material and tangible out of this policy within 12 to 18 months, I think they're done with the United States. Because it's not just now; it's not just China that's in that's in Africa. Very, the ja- you're going to the TCAD yeah. summit. The Japanese are there. The Turks are there. The Russians just had a summit. The French have a summit. The Indians had a summit. So by us focusing so much on the Chinese, we're missing the bigger picture that this is a very competitive landscape. And if the United States literally is not showing up, we couldn't muster a cabinet secretary. We couldn't muster Ben Carson. We couldn't muster anybody to go to Maputo. So you got to show up. And other people are showing up. Macron was there. She goes. Modi was there. So showing up and really seeing a material uh, you know, transition from a policy to something practical and tangible that people can touch and feel on the ground, that to me is going to be something very important to watch in the next year. Yun, has an hourglass been flipped over? Uh, well, I, I see what Eric is saying. <laughs> and I agree that the United States has been absent, um, has been absent in many of these aspects. And I think African co- countries and African governments also have a certain level of frustration with, uh, with U.S. rhetoric, but without the real action. But one fundamental difference here is that while China has a very state-dominated approach, so China has, has the ability to coordinate among policy banks, among state-owned enterprises, and even motivate the private sector people to go into Africa in a very coordinated manner. And when the Chinese policy bank and the government is willing to put money on the table in order to induce these actors to go to Africa, it's, it has been extremely effective. But for the United States, that's simply not the U.S. approach to ask the state to dominate almost um, or to engineer an engagement with Africa. So they got to come up with a different approach then. That I agree. I mean, doing nothing can't be the answer. And just complaining about the Chinese have all the advantages because they've got a policy bank tied in with a company, tied in with the political structure. Okay, that's the way they do it. We do it differently. But what are we going to do? Well, you know, kind of one one thing I could probably suggest is that you know, you know, obviously, in the, in the, okay, two things. In the first place, I, I think I think if you speak to any African policymaker, what they're going to say is we don't want either or. We want all, all of these actors. We want involved, totally. right? They, they, they always they always talk about how how Western and and Chinese entities should be working together, or how there's different they have different strengths and they bring different things to the table, and they want they want as much as possible, as many investors and as many partners. 
resources as possible. I think one of the things that the, the West and the U.S. brings to the table is a very strong regulatory framework, and, 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 and you know, with, which brings with it kind of high levels of transparency. So I think one, you know, one thing, and, and this I don't have a lot of confidence that will it will ever actually happen. But you know, if if one wants to wear something very concrete, that would that would kind of signal a, a, a willingness to to really you know, kind of take a new step in relation to, to, to working with Africa, there's one very simple thing to do. Um, if you look at the, the, what Africa, the, one, the issue that Africa has been pushing so hard over so many years at the G20 is the issue of illicit financial flows. Um, and if, you know, if, if you think about illicit, illicit financial flows, one tends to immediately think about corruption, government corruption. And that is a part of it, but it's a small part of it. You know, so illicit, the, the corruption makes up about two to three billion dollars per year of, of money lost out of Africa. Um, Africa loses 50 billion dollars per year because simply because foreign companies, which of which Western companies make up a large number, simply don't pay taxes. You know, they they simply you know they they use tax havens, they use tax avoidance, all of these different ways to simply you know kind of essentially cheat Africa out of uh, out of tax money. So you know, simply, simply, you know, kind of, for example, working, you know, working with African governments and and multilateral organisations to try and find some kind of way of compelling Western companies to pay some of the tax that they owe African companies. That already is a massive step. For example, what about democracy and governance? I, I, I truly believe that it's not just a set of principles; it's also a set of tools, and we have seen in. Case after case, African journalists expose Mombasa port clause, right? I mean, this is your point, Kobus, about transparency, or at least part of the point. Uh, we, we saw the court turn over the coal uh, in Lamu decision. And Eric, you may want to add uh, what the, the Chinese said in response to that, which is really interesting. Um, but as we've downplayed our democracy and government's promotion, I actually think we've lost a really important tool. Because I don't think the U.S. government should be criticizing the Chinese. I just think it's a really difficult position for us. It smacks of you know, neo-imperialism. But if an African wants to criticize the, what the Chinese are doing, like I think that that's fine. And the U.S. can support that. And we have to be comfortable that they're going to be critis- critical of us. But I want, I want a vibrant conversation about Africa's foreign relations. And I think the U.S. could be investing in creating a space where that's possible, creating a space where legislators um, have hearings over these issues, making sure that investments are right, making sure that military relationships are transparent. And I think judiciaries are critically important to make sure that the deals aren't corrupt, that if there is a dispute, that it can actually adjudicate it. So there's a lot of investments that we could be doing that in this day and age, we think is sort of, you know, namby-pamby and just, you know, good moralistic and altruistic. But the truth is, it's actually part of our core agenda uh, in globally is to create a space where people can compete in a free and fair way and, and people can speak out uh, about their views about foreign relationships and expose what's not working. I don't know, Yoon, does that, does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. There's one problem, which is the demand has to come from Africa. We have the knowledge USAID has capacity building programs, has technical assistance to provide when there is a demand. 68% of Africans support democracy and governance. While the rest of the world is in recession, the Africans, you know, remain, remain determined and supportive of democracy. 
Yeah, that support has not translated into a、uh, vigorous environment against corruption. We'll just say say that. Well, there's there's supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. So U.S. supplies the knowledge as for、well, how to how to better defend 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 the system, how to better safeguard the sovereignty and the financial sustainability sustainability. But the African governments need to be one needs to be the ones who ask for those those knowledge. There needs to be a political will. Unfortunately, in this case of、uh, how to better understand the implications of the Chinese projects, I don't see that kind of demand coming out of Africa for the United States to tell them that, well, is this project going to have long-term financial negative consequences for your national economy? African governments or African publics? Well, that goes to the civil society. If we want to create that demand, we need to invigorate. We need to empower the civil society, empower the journalists to. Almost create these type of demand. Okay, good. You agree with me then? I agree with you. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I mean, Cobus makes this point on our show quite a bit. That's, That's probably where I got, got it. it. Well, yeah, but it's this idea that I'm not so sure that the United States is actually very well positioned to be talking about democracy anymore. I mean,、mm-hmm. let's let's be very honest right、yeah. now. We have a president who has his family members employed, we ha- who has not divorced himself from his businesses, who now embraced Al Sisi was a bear hug. At the White House, who just crossed over into Kim Jong, you know, into North Korea,、right. um, who has denigrated his relationships with democracies, and at the same time, and this is the point that Cobus brings up, the treatment of African Americans in this country is something that is very, very resonant and sensitive.、Yeah. And all those YouTube videos of African American men being shot or being illegally detained by police is something that resonates in African social media. No, absolutely. And so when the United States comes and talks about transparency and good governance and policing and civil society, I have a feeling it's a bunch. Of privileged white people who are coming over from Yale, Princeton, Harvard, who are detached—no offense. I went to but Yale, but that's fine. But my point is that they're detached from the everyday realities on the ground that affect African Americans that are playing very, very prominently in social media. So the United States comes with this rhetoric, and then people see the reality on social media. I think it's hard for people to understand where are we coming from. So I, I, I don't. I have a slight counter.、Um, When I talk to Africans、uh, in and now in this capacity,、um, I I often when we talk about democracy, I say that we don't have the answers all all of the answers. Like we are working through a national conversation. Like we have significant challenges about our institutions and norms. But our politicians don't say that. I know, but I'm just saying that I have found particularly with. Some Africans, actually, a lot of South Africans, that that is actually a much more honest approach than saying. Because I think there was a lot of resentment when the U.S. would come and say, you know, prior to this administration, and say like, democracy, and look at us, and we're perfect, and all of this stuff. I think we're in a much better place to say these are super hard issues. We're working on it. You can see that we're struggling through these issues, and we're not in a better place or a worse place than you. We're all collectively like. Working on how to create and protect societies、uh, so that there's pluralism and that there's these democratic norms. We have kids in cages right now. I know. Okay. But we, but we also have a, we also have media that's exposing it. No, no. There's a lot of good. What you're, you're right. But we have kids in cages, and that's a hard thing to get past in the international media and the optics of it all. So we're talking and not getting due process, by the way, either. And lest I remind you, Guantanamo Bay lack of due process is still there. I'm not trying to harp on the U.S. Please don't misunderstand me. Even though I sound like it, I'm trying to say that a lot of people are looking at this, and we pretend as if they're not paying attention. Kobus, what do you think? 
Yes, I have, I have to, you know, the, both, both the, 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 the strength and the liability of, of the U.S. system is that it's so transparent, you know. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the, the, the incredible dynamism of the U.S. political system and the way that it keeps producing new kinds of political meaning and that, you know, that, that it, it keeps questioning and bringing, you know, um, using things like, like kind of identity to, to, you know, to, to create new rights. Um, you know, all of that, I think, is in lots of ways very inspiring um, for the whole world and, and I think for, for Africa particularly. You know, so, so for example, um, if you, you know, the, the, the LGBT community in Africa, you know, extremely in, influenced by the U.S., you know, and, and, and the way that, that, that U.S. LGBT plus people define themselves and talk about their rights, talk about their identities, is very, very, you know, resonates very strongly in Africa. But because the system is so transparent, of course, all of all of the problems that Eric um, has been mentioning, they're, they're glaring. You know, they're, they're very easy to see. Um, the, but but the openness of the system itself has value. Um, and you know, I, I think, however, that that what is needed is is a stronger kind of commitment by the U.S. to the world. Um, you know, the, I think that the the, the real um, I think that the image of the U.S. has really taken a hit in, in places like Africa, you know, because of American, America first, you know, that, that, that kind of that slogan. Um, and, you know, I think climate change is a, is a good example of this. That this kind of refusal to engage with the suffering of others, refusal to engage with the, with the, the implications of, of the, you know, of, of these kind of policy directions means that you, if you refuse to engage with people on that level, it's difficult to engage with them on other levels as well. You know, so it, 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 it creates a situation where the U.S. continuously seems to be talking one direction and then kind of pulling up the drawbridge behind it at the same time. Okay. And I think, you know, it, it, you know and, and climate change is a, is a classic example of, you know, of, of, of really taking... The future of, you know, the, the world's youngest continent, you know, like there's, there's countries in Africa with, with a median age of 15. Um, you know, it's a lot of young people. Um, and so they, they're thinking a lot about how, how, how their lives are going to be in 20, 30 years. And, it, you know, uh, there isn't, I think, a very strong feeling that the U.S. is necessarily worrying with them, you know, about what that what the future is going to be like. I think that's well said. So we're going to do like a quick lightning round under one minute. I'm going to try to summarize some of the points that I thought were really interesting about a pragmatic approach towards uh, China, Africa. And then uh, you and Eric and Kobus will add one or two, you know, phrases, not sentences. Uh, one was Eric's point, stop talking about China, let's define our policy not in opposition to China, but what we stand for. I think related to that is focus on our strengths when it comes to economic engagement. Three, uh, work with Africans to make sure that they get the best deals when they're dealing with not just the Chinese, but other partners. We can be a neutral arbiter. That's a better position for us to be in. Focus on transparency, uh, whether that's anti-corruption or good governance or, or bolstering civil society. And then this point that Cobus made, which was fantastic, which is recommit to multilateralism. Yoon, what am I missing? No, I think that pretty much covers all, but Eric must have something. Two things. One, we have to show up. we got to be present. Relationships are important in Africa and everywhere around the world. And two, I want us to have a positive policy, a positive vision. The world wants an optimistic America. I like that. Cobus, final word for you. Any other things we're missing on our pragmatic approach? 
I would say stop thinking about Africa as a set of problems to be solved and start thinking about it as the world's biggest emerging market. We could not end on a more perfect note. Thanks, everyone. Okay, Kobus, so I ended on a positive note. <laughs> it was, you know, a, a lot of my comments throughout this show were were quite negative. And I, I even remember after the show, I called you up and I was like, Oh my gosh, did I did I sound like the jerk that I was that I thought I sounded like? <laughs> and did I sound awful there? I mean, and I I guess what I what I'm my frustration when I talk about US policy in Africa is really it comes from a point of goodness in the sense that I want the Americans to be better at this. And we're I don't think we are very good at it right now. I think we're quite mediocre overall. And I think it's not necessarily the fault of any one agency or any one department or any, you know, it's too complicated to boil down to it's, it's because of Trump or it's because of the State Department or it's because of U.S. business. There's just, we, we just, we can be better and we're quite mediocre and we're up against a very formidable competitor in China that is focused, that does have their stuff together, that does have a vision. They are engaged. Their leaders are going. And so the frustration that I was voicing in the show with Judd was more based on that than it was any hostility to the Americans or frustration with the Americans because they're Americans. You know? So I just think it's important for me to clarify that, but it's also a really important part of the discussion. Yeah, I think it's also very important to say that we both speak with a lot of State Department people, and we we we, we I, I'm the first one to to acknowledge, despite the fact that I'm frequently quite critical about the United States in Africa, I would be I very much stridently want to say that the U.S. does amazing things in Africa in in, in many cases. You know, PEPFAR alone um, saves millions of lives. Um, it's it's a ten a, to eleven million lives, and exactly. I got into an argument. I mean, and it's really remarkable. And I got into an argument with a guy on Twitter who said, "What has America ever done?" And I just go, I just drop the PEPFAR right there. Yes. And there is nobody that comes close to that. Yes. No one. And, and it's, again, it comes back to how the world needs America to be strong. It really does. It wants the world to be strong, uh, the U.S. to be strong, to have that optimism, that idealism that we were once known for and that competence that we were once known for. And we're just not seeing today. Yes, the U.S., I think the U.S. is the most powerful in the world when it comes from a place of hope. You know, when it's when it's being propelled by hope rather than by fear or anger. Um, and so, you know, that that is what the world really needs at the moment. It needs it needs that kind of positive leadership. Um, and I think, in, in you know, China provides some of that leadership in some cases, but I don't know that China necessarily has the capacity to to really step into that role at the moment because it is, you know, as the Chinese themselves frequently say, they are still in lots of ways a developing country. You know, so they are preoccupied with internal development issues. Um, so they, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have the leeway to stand at, the, you know, at that place and really just kind of step into the future, provide a, a real direction for the world to, to say, this is, this is how we're not going to fry the world by 2030. This is how we're not going to all die of climate change. This is how, you know, we're going to avoid catastrophic conflict and, 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 you know, the, the world economy tanking. Um, th you know, the, everyone needs to contribute to that, but the U.S. Is, is in a really unique position to take a leadership, a leadership step in that, in that direction. But at the moment, we're not really seeing the U.S. doing that. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's who we are right now. I mean, it's not to say that we won't be that again in the future, and that's certainly who we were in the past. But I, that kind of hope and optimism, uh, that's not us right now. Uh, we are a fearful people, and I think that's a pretty safe statement to say, especially given the horrific events that have happened in the United States over the past few weeks uh, related to the shootings and whatnot. So I think that the mood in the United States is such that Africa will not be a priority for a very long time. Uh, I don't see Prosper Africa, I don't see AGOA, I don't see any of these initiatives really gaining a lot of traction, unfortunately. Uh, you know, there might be something that comes out of the new IDFC, the International Development Finance Corporation. We're starting to see some green shoots of optimism there, so that is something that's very encouraging. And if you want to find out more about that, I really recommend you take a listen to our podcasts that we've done with Aubrey Ruby. Uh, she talks very eloquently on those on those issues. But uh, these are very interesting times for the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. Uh, and I, it's something that, again, this is one of the themes when we talked about last year, what we're going to be looking forward to this year. Uh, U.S.-China-Africa relationship was one of the key themes of 2019. So we're going to be on this one again uh, in the near future. But we'll probably give it a break for a while because we've done quite a few shows on it uh, over the past few weeks. So rest uh, you know, rest assured that we'll, we'll get back to, to doing some other shows. But I do want to send... A very, very big thank you again out to Judd Devermont at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, he, he, you know, hosted me and he welcomed us to his podcast. And also Yuen Sun uh, from Brookings, who was wonderful to see and to meet for the first time and have her on the podcast as well. Uh, she's also been on our show, I think, six years ago, Kobe, yes. one of our earlier guests. So it was great to kind of do another show with her. So we really recommend, once again, subscribe to the Into Africa podcast. Uh, and if you're interested in African affairs, particularly from a U.S. perspective and understanding what's going on inside the Beltway, uh, Judd's podcast is an excellent place to start. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you want to stay in touch with Kobus or I, uh, email is the best way, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Kobus, C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. And of course, we also send out a newsletter every Friday. Uh, Kobus is putting these great little introduction notes, these kind of thoughts of the week that go up looking at the Week in Review and news. They're fantastic. We're getting a lot of great feedback on it. Brand new format that we have for the newsletter. So uh, sign up for that over on our website at chinaafricaproject.com. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>